Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. This morning's scripture lesson is from Luke 24, verses 1 through 11. I know it says 1 through 12, but we have a surprise for you, and there's a method in our madness someplace. If you wish, you may find this passage in your pew Bibles on page 964. But first, let us prepare our hearts through prayer. Lord of life, by submitting to death, you overcame the grave. And by the power of your resurrection, you restore humanity and renew the world. Open our minds to receive your hope and kindle our hearts with the presence of your spirit that we may hear your words of comfort and challenge in the reading of the scriptures. Amen. Now, on the first day of the week, ah, at early dawn, they came to the grave taking the spices that they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men, dazzling clothes, stood beside them. Oh, the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And the second one said, Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Ah, then they remembered these words, and returning from the tomb, oh, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. Ah, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thank you, Charles. I don't think anyone risks staying asleep when Charles is our scripture reader. <laughs> Every church I have ever served, there is something uniquely different about how we celebrate Easter together. There's something different just about the feel and the culture of a place on a day that is that special. And here with you, I've decided this year that it is our kids who rule the day. On Easter morning, all of your little kids come in here bursting with excitement. The kids that are otherwise quiet come up to me perfectly happy to tell me stories of bunnies and eggs and candy and all kinds of things that they've mostly forgotten by today. And you brilliant parents, our brilliant parents here, they put them in suspenders and bow ties and little Easter tutus. It's too much. It's too cute. 
This year, we had the special privilege of baptizing two of these little ones, two little sisters, in the midst of our 5 o'clock gathering service. It happens every Sunday evening. And the older of these two sisters, she's about two and a half, and as we got ready for her baptism, she walked right up to the front of the worship space. She turned and looked at the congregation, and she said, Happy Easter! When it came time to baptize her, I... I lifted her up to the font, and as we got close to it, she just stuck her hands right into the water and began to splash her own face. (laughs) I proceeded to baptize her anyway. I don't know what the rules are for a self-baptism. I've never participated in one of these. For me here, it is your kids who rule Easter every year. And that's important for me. We, we know that kids are important in the life of the church, important to Christ himself. But for me, how we treat our youngest when they come into this place, it's important and it is personal. My earliest memories of the church are positive ones, largely because the older people around me asked me about the Easter Bunny and snuck me candy under the pews, which I don't think we do enough of here. And they just smiled whenever my brother or sister made too much noise. And most importantly, they encouraged my curiosity. The earliest memories of the church for me are being a, of it being a place that nurtured my abundance of questions. I was a very curious kid. My parents were thankfully good at this. They didn't let my questions go unexplored or unanswered. But then we started going to church. My parents were not church-going people, but my grandma was a very successful shamer. And so we began to go to church every Sunday, the small Presbyterian church in my hometown. It was there that my questions expanded. These were questions that it was a little harder for my parents to create impromptu field trips to figure out. And so if you're here in these pews fairly regularly, it's harder to remember, I think, just how strange our story and the things we do here really are. As a child, I was very aware of these strange things. I was very concerned about where the dinosaurs were in Genesis. I was frightened for a longer period of time than I'm comfortable admitting with the idea of angels. You see, In our book, angels are really preoccupied with showing up to young women and telling them they're having babies. I was concerned about this as a child. And Easter, forget about it, I learned to ride my bike in a local cemetery, which makes the prospect of resurrection terrifying. It had to be explained to me that it it was Jesus, at least for now, it was just Jesus. But my parents, brilliantly, they told me to go ask the pastor when these questions came up. And thankfully, God bless that man, he took my questions in stride. He answered what he could, and when he couldn't come up with something to satisfy me, he told me to keep asking. He encouraged my wondering. He explained to me that there are a lot of things we just don't know, that some of the missing pieces are the mystery of our faith but that also some missing pieces just haven't been imagined yet. He passed away some years before I knew I was called to seminary, but I know that he planted those early seeds. My wondering hasn't stopped since I've grown in life and faith, but it changes. 
I think you understand that. Through college and seminary, I was introduced to worlds that I didn't previously know existed. And these names and these ideas and these professors and their perfectly tailored tweed jackets that looked like they walked out of a Google image search for professor. There were these big, beautiful libraries with more books than I would ever be able to consume. I was introduced to these new worlds as if they had all the answers for all of the things. I didn't stop asking questions, but I have spent some, tr some time trusting that answers exist if I just don't know them, that, that I just need to look farther, read more, study more, find someone in a tweed jacket and ask them. And in a lot of cases, that is true. But it was also true that those big buildings and beautiful libraries, that they might have seduced me into accepting some answers that I have never been quite satisfied with. Answers that are just not good enough. Maybe none so much as the ones that we stumble through together every Easter season. Our resurrection stories are wondering places for me. I think they are for many of us. And Luke, Luke's account of the story is my least favorite of our gospel writers. It's just not that interesting. Not like Mark with multiple endings to keep us wondering, and it's not like Matthew with earthquakes and stricken soldiers. It's not like John with a weeping Mary Magdalene and a holy moment with a risen Christ. Luke's account is kind of boring as the author pushes the drama to the next scene with the disciples walking to Emmaus. But rereading Luke's account in these days, I have found myself struck with all kinds of new questions. The women, Mary Magdalene especially, who appears in every resurrection account at the cross, at the tomb. She's there with Mary, the mother of James and Joanna. And when they find that the stone is rolled away, these two messengers ask them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Remember how he told you? It says that they remembered, and they went to tell the rest of the disciples. But it says that to the rest of the disciples, these words seemed to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The set of commentaries that I have in my office were a gift from my first boss, my first head of staff in the church, who retired while I was working with him. They, these commentaries are the interpretation series. I find them mostly helpful. They have informed generations of preachers and teachers. And the commentary written particularly on the Gospel of Luke is written by the great Fred Craddock. Dr. Craddock literally wrote the book on preaching for my seminary class and countless others before and after. His exegesis is inspired, it is helpful, his stories continue in our shared memory. But on his discussion of this part of the resurrection story in Luke, Dr. Craddock says that the apostles did not believe the report should not be explained by saying it was because the report was given by women. There has been too much of such flippancy no doubt men bringing the same report would have met the same unbelief. 
He's not wrong. We remember that the women are talking about life from death here. It is an unbelievable story. But his commentary, his interpretation, is one of a person who has never walked this world in female skin. It dismisses the cultural context of their time, of his time, of our time, a context that has always been bent on not believing women. It doesn't make his commentary wrong, but it makes it incomplete. And I worry that incomplete interpretation has prevented us from finding new ones. We live in a day when we can no longer settle for incomplete. It is in these days when people of power, people who I previously thought knew a lot of things, sat on national television for days in front of a woman who told a story that sounds a lot like some of mine, only for them to mock her, dismiss her, not believe her. It is in these days after it has taken 25 years to convict a good man, a doctor of gymnasts, for the abuse he was guilty of because 250 young women were not believed. It is in this day when the price of women's silence is known, purchased at a cost of $130,000 by the highest office in our nation. It is in these days that the words of Luke's resurrection story come to us with offense and should leave us wondering what 2,000 years of the male disciples not believing the women's story and our inability to interpret more completely here have done to our collective understanding. It's in these days when forces bent on silencing women are parading around in power that we have to wonder how much of their parading is due to the majority religion in our nation excusing their power, submitting it to their influence, accepting their limited interpretations of our holy text for all of history. So I've spent this year trying to reclaim my wondering because I desperately do not want to hand down those unsatisfying answers to all of the curious kids who show up here on Easter morning. It is the case, thanks be to God, that we are living through a time when alternative interpretations are available. The world of biblical interpretation has expanded in these last decades, with feminist and womanist scholars who are helping us to read our story in new ways. Don't hear me wrong, we've been at this since Mary Magdalene's first sermon, but for the first time in our 2,000-year history, the Spirit has cracked open the church just enough that we've started to believe. And I think it's our resurrection heroine, Mary Magdalene herself, who might be able to help us here. Forever and ever, Mary Magdalene has been the penitent sinner. We see her that way because at least in the 6th century, if not before, Mary Magdalene's identity has been cemented into that of a prostitute. It was in the year 594 that Pope Gregory the Great preached preached homily 33 on Easter Sunday and forever cast Mary Magdalene to the role of a harlot. There is no scriptural reference for Mary being a penitent harlot. The only scriptural reference for Mary's sins comes from a single verse in Luke 
that mentions expelling her seven demons. No mention of what those are, what that means. It wasn't until 1969 that the Catholic Church formally repealed that original teaching and confessed that Mary Magdalene was probably not a prostitute, that her sins are likely not of a sexual nature, but for 1,300 years her image was painted enshrined in red with clothes that always revealed a little too much of her skin. Her feast day was consecrated forever the saint to those who struggle with sexual temptation. And so forever, whenever our wondering crops up about Mary Magdalene, the outcome is something like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Our questions have been co-opted by the idea of Mary as a sexualized figure, which limits our interpretation of her to one of scandal. Unless we are willing to put on a new lens and wonder a little farther, that's who she will be trapped to be. So wonder with me. We know that the names in our biblical texts are never just names. So I was first taught that she was Mary from a town called Magdala. It's a small fishing town on the Sea of Galilee, three hours north of Tiberias, with a tower that overlooks the sea, a fishing village. It seems a reasonable assessment of her name, but new scholars have wondered. Is Mary's name about geography, or is it functional? Remember how Jesus reinterprets Peter's name in the Gospel of Matthew to be the rock, the rock on which I will build my church, Literally translated, Magdala means tower, or alternatively, pulpit. Like Peter the Rock, what if Mary is named Magdala, the tower, the pulpit from which the first words of resurrection will be preached? Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. A curious person might first ask why there are so many Marys. It is because the the most famous woman in all of Hebrew literature is Miriam. Miriam, sister of Moses and Aaron, first prophet of the Old Testament, not first female prophet, first prophet. Translated into Aramaic and Greek, Miriam is Maria, English Mary. They're all named after Miriam. The following of our first prophet is strong in this community. And some more recent female scholars have offered this. Why are we so certain that these are all different Marys? What if several of these characters are all Mary Magdalene? What if our early interpreters realized that Mary Magdalene had a little too much sway over our early Jesus stories? She needed to be diluted with more Marys. What if at least a few of these, Mary, sister of Martha, Mary of Bethany, what if they're all Mary Magdalene? What if we knew her as Mary in the tradition of the great prophet Miriam from the city of Bethany, sister of Martha and Lazarus, who Jesus brought back from the dead, she who is called the Magdalene, a tower who will preach the first words of resurrection? changes some things. This matters. Mary's Magdalene role in Jesus's life and in our faith isn't a female question. 
Her identity is a Christian question. If we confess to follow this Jesus, we should be curious about his closest companion. Knowing her can, and I think does, help us to know him better. And maybe more imperative for us here and now, allowing ourselves to wonder here, allowing ourselves to peek through the cracks of 2,000 years of androcentric, male-only rule, male-only interpretation, it has the ability to shine some light on all kinds of questions we need to be asking of our biblical text, of all of our accepted, incomplete interpretations. We need the wisdom from our past. But if we are going to get farther than our past, we need to free that wisdom from the shackles of singular perspectives that dominate power have held for all of history. We have to put more voices at the table, and we have to believe those voices. Relying on tradition as an answer to wondering about women's role in the church, it is just not good enough. Continuing to hand down cheap interpretation that Jesus' closest followers were boys, so male leadership is what God has ordered, it is not good enough. The most growing areas of Christianity in our world, in our country, are in traditions where women are still barred from leadership. We here at Village Church, who want all voices in our pulpits, we are the minority of Christians in our nation. And I have met our first ordained PCUSA female pastor. We do not own a long enough history to assume it will bend our way. If we do not demand some different questions, start repeating different narratives, we risk a future of silence for our little girls who reach into the font and proclaim Happy Easter. Memories of marches walked and won should inform us, they should inspire us, but memories of good that has been done will not undo the evil that locks our black children into prison cells today. And the words on the Statue of Liberty that are being shared all over social media, they welcomed my ancestors to these shores, but they are not freeing the children that we have put in cages at our southernmost border. The recycling programs instituted by a generation awakening to the death of our planet taught my generation our planet's health matters, but that death has only accelerated while we demonize new ideas as idle tales and we fail to believe our newest interpreters as we protect the industries with the most power who are causing the most harm. We must be informed by the wisdom of those big, old, beautiful libraries, by the collective wisdom that has been lived, but there are missing pieces. There are scandalized and obscuring pieces. We have to wonder farther than we have dared to wonder before. And if Mary Magdalene has anything to teach us today, it might be that this is not easy. Draped in red, marked as a penitent sinner, imagined as wife and lover and anything but wise witness, she warns us that this is a dangerous road, that the forces who threw her in the harlot's den 1,300 years ago will continue to undermine those who love Jesus enough to follow him no matter the cost. My hope is that her redemption can be ours, too. 
For early in the morning, the first day of the week, the women walked to the tomb. And Mary Magdalene was there. Of course she was there. They found that the stone had been rolled away. And they, when they entered, they met the messengers. And the women were terrified. And the angels asked, asked them, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Remember how he told you while he was with you. They remembered his words. They remembered because they had been with him then, with him, not outside his circle, with him in his circle. They remembered, and they went to find the rest of the disciples who missed the greatest story ever told because they did not believe. So then and now, for the sake of the curious children who come after us, we must stop looking for the living among the dead. We must make space for new interpretations. We must believe them. Let's pray. So, Holy God, free us from interpretations that are incomplete and help us, God, to believe. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.